Well, we're going to be in Esther chapter 8 this morning. We're going to do our best to cover three chapters, believe it or not. Uh, we have gone through the book of Esther over the last four weeks, and this will close out the final portion of Esther's story. I know many of you are already familiar, so this might be a reminder to you. And for some of you, maybe you're hearing the story of Esther for the first time through this series. We hope you've been encouraged. We pray that you've been uh, exhorted to good works. And as you're turning to Esther chapter 8, I want to just, um, I, I guess, speak about the fact that, man, throughout the, the last four weeks, we've been celebrating this character in the history of the Jews named Esther. She was a beautiful young woman who got caught up into God's story, and she really didn't know what God was doing every step of the way, but she was called out of complete obscurity into a famous role and ultimately would be a national hero because of God's providence in her life. And I think about like she found God's purpose as she was obedient to God every step of the way. And I think about that idea of purpose. And I think every one of us wants to know God's purpose for our life. We all want to know, man, have I lived my life well? Did I carry out what God wanted for me to do? Have I fulfilled my purpose in life? Did I run my race with success? We all want to know that at the end of our days, we've finished our course and we've kept the faith and that our life has had purpose. You know, uh, the world lost a great man of God this week that really none of you know. And to be honest with you, I didn't know super well. But my great uncle Dean, his name was Dean Bainey, he passed away just a few days ago at 97 years old. And I feel like maybe a year or so ago, I shared a little bit about his story and his impact on my family tree and us spiritually as a family. And I want to share a little bit about Dean with you this morning because he was a great man of God. But the truth is, is that the world will not celebrate him. Because he didn't, he didn't conquer empires. He didn't conquer enemies. He didn't conquer record books. And the reality is, is that in a hundred years, no one will probably remember Dean Bainey's name. But the fact of the matter is, is that he lived a victorious Christian life. Because when Dean was a young man, Jesus radically saved him. And when he was saved by Christ, his life was transformed completely, and he found his purpose through salvation. My Uncle Dean, after he came to Christ, he was the first in my family to become a believer. And when he was saved, he, uh, he, did, he, 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 he committed his life to full-time ministry. He surrendered to full-time ministry. He went to Bible college in Dallas. He came back to the Mansfield area, and he pastored at Mansfield Baptist Temple as an associate pastor for several decades. He was a great and faithful man of God. But the reality is, is that he never led his own congregation. Not one person, to my knowledge, owns a copy of a single sermon that he ever preached. He never wrote a book. He never did anything that the world would say is extraordinary. But he still was a faithful and victorious man of God. And my, mom, my dad and I, a few years ago, we sat down realizing the impact that Dean had on our extended family tree. We decided to sit down and just calculate or count the impact that he had had on the Standridge family in particular. And as we started running down the list of all the people, my cousins, my second cousins, my cousins' kids, my aunts, my uncles, my grandparents, my dad, my mom, all these people, 
we realize that no less than four generations of people have been affected by one man finding his purpose in life. And it equaled out to 35 people and counting that have not just professed a faith in Christ, but have a living, active relationship with Jesus. Because Christ saved him. And he surrendered to God's call in his life. 35 people's lives have been changed as a result. I am here because of one man and what God did through him. Certainly God could have gotten me here to this place and by other means, but God chose to use a man named Dean Bainey to get me to this place. And I know like Dean, many of us, we want to know God's purpose in our life. We want to know it so bad that we read books on it and we preach sermons on it. In fact, many of you have probably heard of the book, The Purpose Driven Life, written by Pastor Rick Warren. He wrote it a little over 20 years ago, and that book has been so popular that it's sold over 50 million copies since it was first published, and it's been translated into 85 different languages. The world is in search of purpose for their lives. And so I want to ask this question, what is our primary purpose in this life? What is our primary purpose, our primary end goal in, 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 in our lives? And I would say this before anything else, it is to experience the grace of God and to extend the glory of God to the nations. That is our primary purpose, why God has us here as Christians. And then beyond that, we can live out many different purposes that are unique to each of us uh, in, in our lives as God takes us in different directions. But we can know our purpose when we know that we've obeyed God's commands for our lives. We can know our purpose when we have walked in step with Jesus, when we have been obedient to those divine moments that God brings every one of us along the way, those divine appointments. And as we close out our study on the book of Esther this morning, I want to talk about a lady who... Um, who stepped into her divine moment. And I want, to, I want to remind us that Esther and Mordecai, both of them, seized the divine moment in their place in time. And so Esther walked in obedience and she stepped into her purpose. She took a risk. She laid her life on the line and she stepped out on behalf of her people. And an entire race of people were saved because she refused to live just a comfortable life. Because she knew that this was the moment that God had created her for. This was her defined moment, or defining moment and her divine moment. And you might be thinking to yourself, yeah, I've heard all of the story. It's a great story. I love it when the, when the righteous people win in the end. I love that, I mean, we already, most of us probably already know that Esther and Mordecai come out on top in the end, that the Jews end up surviving. Um, that's a great story, right? Like we love those kinds of stories in the scripture. And you might be asking, so how does this apply to me and God's purpose in my life? I mean, how does one woman becoming a national hero apply to me? I'd seriously doubt as I look around the room, I seriously doubt that any of us are probably going to be heroic on the level of Esther who saved a nation of people. I mean, look at the person sitting next to you. Go ahead and look at him right now. Look at that person next to you. They don't exactly strike you as heroic, the heroic type, do they? I mean, we all, if, if I'm being honest, the, the, the makeup of the people in this room, myself included, we are not necessarily the types that were meant for the history books. We're just average people. I don't know that any of you probably view yourself as extraordinary, and that's okay. 
Because here's the reality that I want to remind us of this morning, is that none of us were created to be heroes. In fact, that's the last thing that God really wants for each of you is to be a hero. What he wants to do is he wants to use you, and he wants to use you in a way that when you are used by him, you point to the ultimate hero, which is Jesus Christ. He is the hero of our history. He is the hero of our story. We were never meant to carry that load. We were never meant to be the heroic types. And so the opportunities that come our way on a day-to-day basis, a month-to-month basis, a year-to-year basis, they should simply be moments for us to express the glory of God to those who are watching what God is doing in our lives. There are moments for me to express the glory of Christ and advance the mission of Christ as opposed to advancing the mission of Chris. These moments that we're created for that may come along that may be way smaller than what Esther and Mordecai went through They're divine moments, but they're also divine moments for us to point back to Jesus. And they can become purposes that we can fulfill in our life. And there's no doubt that God wants us to fulfill his purpose for our life. You know the verses, right? Jeremiah chapter 29 says, you know, uh, it says, um, I'm drawing a blank now, for I know the plans that I have for you. The plans that God has for us. You know, Colossians talks about we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Romans chapter 8 verse 28 says, um, man, it says, for all things work together for the good, for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And one of my favorite verses in all the Bible is probably this obscure verse that maybe you've heard, maybe you haven't. It's found in Acts chapter 13. It's a description of one man in the Old Testament. Verse 36 says, Now when David served God's purposes in his own generation, he fell asleep, he was buried with his ancestors, and his body decayed. This is David's biblical uh, obituary, if you will. David served God's purposes in his generation. He died, he was buried, and then his body decayed. Nothing more really need be said about David because he served God's purpose in his generation. My question to you this morning as you are advancing in your days, as you are carrying out God's plan in your life, what are you really trying to advance? Could you be happy with that obituary or that statement being written on your tombstone that you simply lived, that you simply carried out God's purpose for your life, that you died and that you decayed? Can you be content with that being your testimony. I think it's a powerful thing. And David shows us that we can serve God's purpose in our lives. So how do we discover God's purpose beyond experiencing the grace of God and extending the glory of God? Well, I think there's four things that we can find in Esther chapter 8, 9, and 10. And I want to give you some things that remind us of what God's purposes are for us beyond experiencing the grace of God and extending the glory of God. And the first thing is this, if you're taking notes in your program, you certainly can write these things down in the blanks. My purpose is to enlist in God's rescue mission. 
My purpose is to enlist in God's rescue mission. And, and Brother Ed, I, I don't know if you knew what I was going to be preaching on this morning, but when you share that story of Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and those, those missionaries who felt compelled, they felt called to go to these tribes of people that have never heard the gospel of Jesus, it just hit me afresh and anew, realizing these were men that sacrificed everything and enlisted in God's rescue mission. And here we are in Esther chapter 8, right? We're at this place where Haman is now dead. The wicked, the evil Haman is dead. And his, but his decree that was set out and was set forth before he died to have a one-day purge of all of the Jews still stood. Because once a decree or a law was set in place with the, with the Medes and the Persians, it could not be revoked. It was irrevocable. And so there was no overturning it. And so we're at this place where Haman is dead, but there are still enemy people coming for the Jews in a very short, short time. And this is where Esther, and do you remember what Esther's name means? It means star. This is Esther's brightest moment. This is where she becomes a star because she steps into what God has for her. And the truth is, is that Esther could have just kind of lived a selfish life. She had been saved from Haman. She was protected. She was living in the citadel. She was the the wife of the king. Like there was really nothing that could touch her. Mordecai had been advanced to the second in command of the entire Persian empire. They were safe. But the truth is, is that they weren't satisfied to be saved alone. Esther realized that there was still a nation of people that were headed toward destruction because they couldn't defend themselves because there were haters, there were enemies that were coming after them in a very short time. And Esther could not turn a blind eye. How could she possibly sleep at night? How could she possibly lay her head on her pillow at night in comfort knowing that she was saved but 15 million Jews potentially could die because she just didn't care enough. Imagine that responsibility. So here's Esther. This is her moment to shine. This is her moment to step into. She makes a passionate plea to to the king on behalf of her people. And that takes us to um, Esther chapter 8, verses 3 through 6. Let's read this. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter, basically meaning, I give you permission to come to me, to talk to me. That was a major risk that Esther would go to the king unsolicited, that she would step into his court. She could have lost her life just for doing that. But the, but the king extends his scepter toward her, and Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? This tells you the heart of Esther in this moment. In her purest moment, this is what she says. How can I bear to see this calamity? She pleads desperately to the king that he would save his, her people. That he would revoke this decree, but he could not. Folks, may we never lack a desperation for those who are in peril. 
for those who are lost. May we never lack a desperation for them to be saved. What we see further on in Esther chapter 8, verses 9 through 14, we're not going to read them all, but what we see is we see a decree that is written. The king says, yes, let's write a new decree. We can't undo the last one, but what we can do is we can make a new law that allows the Jews to defend themselves against their enemies. And so the king urges that a new decree is written. The scribes were summoned to write a decree that the Jews could defend themselves And the Bible says that that decree was quickly sent out um, by the couriers on the swiftest horses that were bred uh, bred by the royal stud. So the very best and fastest horses in the Persian Empire were carrying out this message that the Jews could defend themselves. And the the couriers rode hurriedly, scripture says, as they were urged by the king. This all was in desperation and urgency so that people might be saved. Folks, do you live with that kind of desperation for the lost? Do any of us live with that kind of desperation? Because think about this. There are an estimated four and a half billion people on the planet who are lost, who do not claim to be Christians. And over half of those people have actually never heard the gospel of Christ presented to them. Think about four and a half billion people plunging to a Christless eternity. In fact, if you lined up four and a half billion people, five people in a row, and you lined them up in a line four and a half billion people long, that line would be long enough, it's said, to circle the globe five times. That seems like an insurmountable task, right? To take the gospel of Jesus to the nations, it's impossible for me to do that. It's impossible for me to reach even a drop in the bucket of four and a half billion people. Someone once said, the death of one is a tragedy, but the death of a million is just a statistic. You know, the greatest tragedy is that the one that you might be able to reach just becomes a statistic in your mind because there's so many people around you that need to be reached and you're overwhelmed by the odds, you're overwhelmed by the task that maybe that one person that only you can reach with the gospel of Jesus never hears it because you never tell them because you feel like it's an impossible task. That's the greatest tragedy for the believer. And what I always tell people is this, do for one what you wish you could do for many. Do for one what you wish you could do for many. And I got to be honest, I I have a heart for people to come to Christ. It's what I've given my life to as a pastor, as a youth pastor for nearly 20 years, now as a campus pastor, as a communities pastor. All the things that I do are hopefully pointing people to the gospel of Jesus so that lives might be transformed. But I lament the fact that I don't have the passion for the lost to be saved like Paul did. Romans chapter 9 This is Paul's testimony in verse 1. He says this, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for Christ for the sake of my brothers. 
my kinsmen according to the flesh. This is Paul saying, I so desperately want to reach my fellow Jews. I so desperately want to reach the lost that I would literally trade my own salvation if I could reach my people. If I could reach those around me, that is a passion. That is a desperation. That is an urgency. That is someone who signed up for a rescue mission and understood the ramifications of it and, and, and how important it is that we reach the lost. So Paul wept for those that were lost. Esther wept for those who needed to be delivered. When was the last time you wept for someone who was far from Christ? I couldn't tell you the last time I did. In fact, whenever I talk about the end times, whenever I talk about the rapture, I get really excited. My girls are all living for Jesus. They've all made a profession of faith. They've all Uh, After coming to Christ, they all got baptized. And I feel like, okay, God, Jesus, come quickly. I'm ready to go. But you know what's really sad is whenever I talk to my parents about the rapture, they are believers. They are looking forward to Christ's return. But you know what? All they do is pray that the Lord would tarry because they still have two or three grandkids that don't know Jesus. And we talk about the Lord coming again, and all they do is weep. Because they know that there are grandkids that are old enough to have a relationship with Christ and they don't. And they're broken and they weep every time we talk about those grandkids. Every time we talk about spiritual things with them. Every time they talk about Christ coming again, they come to tears because they're broken. For those that are far from Christ. Folks, our calling is to reach people with the gospel. We don't need to keep continuing uh, to, to search for a purpose in life. We've already found it. It's clear. It's that we enlist in the Great Commission, that we give our lives to reaching just the one, and maybe then beyond that, the multitudes. Romans chapter 10, verse 13. Man, I love these verses. Many of you have heard them before. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Or how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. What is our part in the process of salvation? What is our part in the plan, God's plan of salvation? It's simply to preach. We can't force people to believe. We can't force them to hear. We can't force them to call out to Jesus. And we certainly cannot save them. What we can do is simply preach and proclaim. We have a mission and we need to enlist in this, in this uh, uh, rescue mission that Jesus has called us into. Secondly, my purpose in life, my purpose is to be faithful where others have failed to be faithful where others have failed. Back to Esther. We're going to look at verse or chapter 9, the first five verses here for a moment. We're going to see where the Jews were faithful people. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's commands and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in, the, in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents 
also helped the Jews for fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them and and did as they pleased to those who hated them. So this is where we're at. The Jews, they couldn't control the situation around them. They couldn't control the circumstances. They were exiles living in the Persian Empire. And all they could do was respond to what was kind of presented to them, what was thrust to them. And what we see is a nation of people who refuse to pass the problem along to other people. Along, you know, they refused to pass the problem down to the next generation, even though plenty of problems had been passed down to them by their fathers and their forefathers. Where others had failed, they would determine to be faithful. Folks, have you ever inherited, have you ever inherited a situation that wasn't your fault, but it was then your problem to fix? Man, that can be really frustrating, can't it? Someone passes a problem on to you and says, it's your problem now. You got to fix it. And you're like, are you serious right now? Like, I didn't cause this. I, uh, I have a rooted class that I lead. It's a Bible study on Wednesday nights. And uh, every week we encourage a different person that is a part of that class to share their faith testimony. And so we get to hear the stories of people that we really don't even know well each week. And we get to hear what God has done in their lives. And this week, I was reminded of how sometimes problems get passed on to us. And there's really nothing that we did to take on those problems, but it's our problem to work with and to fix and to steward. And so a man named Thomas in my group this week shared his tragic story. Thomas, you see, was, I'm going to give you some bullet points of his story. Thomas was born to a mom who was a drug addict. She had two siblings and they both had different fathers from his father. Three dads, three kids, one mom. Thomas was forced to move all over the country from uh, New York to Colorado to Texas because of his mom's drug addictions all before he was like five or six years old. Thomas lived, um, he lived in a crack house when he was a kid. He had a sister who committed suicide because of um, some schizophrenia, some childhood schizophrenia, committed suicide. Thomas was kidnapped and sexually abused when he was a teenager. And all of these things happened before he graduated high school. And none of them were of his own volition. None of them were because he made those decisions. They were all things that came to him because of someone else. But you want to know Thomas's response and his testimony? He said to the the group, he said, in 2007, I went to a church camp called Word of Life. He said, I heard the gospel preached and I accepted Jesus. He said, God radically transformed my life. And instead of falling into generational sin, I'm forging a new path for me and my family. I have a wife who loves Jesus. I now have two young children. We are going to follow Christ. There's a man who said, I'm not going to fail like those before me because Jesus has done something. He has given me victory and I'm going to walk in that victory and I'm going to be faithful. Folks, we can't control the situations that we're born into. We can't control those that we're born to. We can't control everything that happens around us, but what we can control is what we decide to do in those moments. And we can decide to be faithful or we can decide to fail just like everybody else. And so we think about this moment that Esther's in, 
right? There, there's 15 million Jews in the Persian Empire. There's an estimated 15 million Jews. And every one of them, their lives are in danger. And all of this happened because a man named King Saul, 500 years earlier, failed to be faithful. God told him to wipe out the king of the Amalekites. His name was King Agag. And Saul didn't do it. He wasn't faithful. He let him live. And all these years later, a man named Haman in the book of Esther came from the line of Agag and he hated the Jews. All of this happened because Saul was unfaithful. And here's Esther in this moment, Mordecai in this moment, the Jews in this moment, they could determine, am I going to be faithful or am I going to fail and pass this failure on? Well, what we know is that the Jews... In Persia, they are faithful and they decide to take up arms and they defend themselves. They don't go on the attack. They simply play defense. And scripture tells us that 75,000 enemy attackers were slain that day and the Jews were saved. What an amazing thing. Will you choose to be faithful or will you perpetuate a pattern of failure in your life? Number three, we're moving quickly. My purpose is to be a steward of all God entrusts to me. To be a steward of all God entrusts to me. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 3 says this in Esther. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. And all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews. He was popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all of his people. Mordecai was a faithful steward of his position, of his responsibility. He didn't just selfishly advance himself. He, he lived for others. He lived to serve and to speak peace to his people and to seek their welfare. And he was popular among the people because of it. You know, stewardship is really deciding how to handle what isn't yours, but has been placed into your hands. And every one of us have been placed something into our hands and God wants us to steward, steward it. And you can bet at the beginning of the story, Esther and Mordecai were not ready. They were not volunteering to be stewards. They weren't looking for management opportunities. They weren't looking for the lives to be turned upside down so that they could do something great for God. In fact, if you remember back all the way to week one or week two, we talked about how maybe Mordecai and Esther's motives were a little bit skewed, a little bit impure. We weren't really quite sure at that time why they were doing some of the things that they were doing. But see, over the course of time, God proves that they're faithful. They prove to be faithful to God. Have you ever heard the, the phrase, God can draw straight lines with crooked sticks? You ever heard that phrase? Any crooked sticks in here this morning? You know, I feel crooked all the time. I do not feel like I have it all together. I do not feel like I have all the answers. I feel like I don't measure up. I feel like life is out of control at times. I feel like I'm not good enough. Like I don't have it all together. How can God possibly use me? Mordecai and Esther were crooked sticks. But God used them to draw some straight lines to connect the dots of history and to bring all of this story together to wrap it up really nicely. And folks, I want to remind you that God can use you to draw straight lines, even though you're a crooked stick. 
Man, and maybe what you need to steward, maybe it's a spiritual gift. Maybe it's a relationship that you need to cultivate. Maybe it's a rebuke that you need to give to someone that's living in sin. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a mission that you need to engage in. Maybe it's a campaign that you need to participate in. Maybe it's a relationship that you need to mend, but you've been given this moment in history. You've been given this opportunity and you need to steward it well. That means you manage what God has placed in your hands. Fulfill God's purposes by managing the king's assets well. And then lastly, fourthly, my purpose is to remember and celebrate God as the hero of my story. My purpose is to remember and to celebrate God as the hero of my story. I'm not the hero of my story. I was never meant to be that person. Look at um, back at Esther chapter 9, verse 20 through 22. It says this, And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. So they got victory. And so Mordecai says, a new decree is going out. On the 14th and 15th of the month of Adar, we will celebrate because God delivered us. And as the month that had been turned from them or for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. And this is where the Jews are at, right? Like God has miraculously delivered them and rescued them. And so now's the time to party. Now's the time to celebrate. Folks, has Christ turned your sorrow into gladness? Has he turned your mourning into a holiday? Has he rescued you? That we have a purpose to celebrate. We have a king to lift up and to magnify. We should never forget what Jesus Christ did for us. And this morning, as we took communion, we just remembered. We just were reminded that Jesus is the hero of our story. And we pause in these moments every Sunday that we come together to lift up and to exhort and to exalt the name of Jesus. He is the hero of our story. So the Jews in this moment, they had been waiting. I got these four W words. They waited once the decree came against them by Haman. They worried about their future for months. Then they warred for their survival on the days that they could defend themselves. And then they worshiped in celebration of God's victory and the deliverance that he brought them. Man, when God rescued them, scripture tells us they weren't just pleased to party, right? Like it wasn't just an optional thing. Look at verse 27. I love this. Verse 27 and 28. The Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail, they would keep these two days according to what was written Um, And at the time appointed every year that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation and every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the uh, commemoration of the of these days cease among their descendants. So it wasn't just an optional thing. They obligated themselves to celebrate Are you that thankful to Christ that he saved you that you are obligated to celebrate him? Sometimes we just, 
we kind of sulk in our misery and all the things that are going wrong and all the evil that's in the world and it just brings us down. And I think a lot of Christians go to church and we gather together and it's just like a, it's almost like a funeral service at times because there's so much weight upon our shoulders. But what we need to be reminded is that we truly have victory. We have something to celebrate. And so when we worship together, we come together to remember that God is the, that Christ is the hero of our stories. For the Jews, they celebrated what God did through Esther the queen as a national hero. For the Christian, we celebrate what God did through Christ the king as the, as the hero of salvation. We have so much to be thankful for. Amen? Let's close our sermon in a word of prayer.